All right, thank you all for being here this morning for equipping hour. We're going to go ahead and begin, and uh, I'll pray in just a little bit here. But uh, if you remember last week, we presented a case, and we're going to try to do this for at least a couple of weeks just to kind of get our juices flowing in the morning. But uh, the case is on your handout. If, did, actually, did everybody have a handout? There's a handout that's going around. And I think probably on page two of the handout is case one and case two. So on the back side of your handout, you see case one and case two. So we're going to, take, we're going to talk about case number one just for a little bit this morning as we begin uh, and talk about some of the, you know, answer, quote-unquote answers, if you will. So case number one, again, this is from uh, the Christian Counselor's Casebook. Uh, There's nothing left to our marriage. That's the way Jack ended his long tale of disagreement, heartache, and frustration. And as the final statement, Jack said, I just don't love Jill anymore. Jill was quick to agree, and I don't love Jack anymore either. All of the feelings that I had, I once had for him are gone. It was clear that Jack and Jill had not come to you for help, but to clear their consciences. As professing Christians, they knew that they had no biblical grounds for divorce. Yet here they were, coming to you as their Christian friend, seeking your quote-unquote counsel on their plans for divorce, because living together no longer seemed bearable. So question number one, where or oh, where do you begin uh, to answer them? I think, uh, and you know, these are not all the quote-unquote right answers, but just something that, that I thought about is, um, first thing is to kind of understand their goal and yours, right? What are they trying to accomplish? Are they really trying to come to you for help, right? Do they really want your counsel and your insight, or do they simply want your affirmation? And uh, that is a common thing that you'll see in Christian counseling. People ask for your advice, but they really just want your affirmation or permission, if you will. So uh, I think it's an important thing is to, is to begin is to understand what is their goal and yours, right? Um, so I would ask them that question. And then the, the next question we, would be, how can you get these people to draw closer to the Lord and make decisions that glorify God? So we'd ask them that question. I would ask them the questions like, oh, you guys say that you're professing believers. Is that true? And if so, are you completely committed to honoring the Lord in your decisions, recognizing him as the Lord of your life? Right. If you're professing believers, it's difficult to say no to a question like that. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Those are some kind of um, preliminary questions to kind of get a sense of where they stand and where they want to go. And then if they're open to further discussion, if they say that, sometimes people say like, that's it, I'm done, thanks for your advice. It's clear that you're not going to give the answer that I want. They don't usually say that, but they'll just say, you know, they'll, they'll cut it off at that point. But if they're open and if they say like, yes, we are believers and yes, we do want to try to glorify God in our lives, um, then you begin the process of data gathering. And I think Pastor Isaiah in a few weeks is going to talk about kind of the mechanics of Christian counseling a little bit later. But uh, in this scenario, you'd want to ask a lot of questions. Um, in order to get to this point, of course, there's been a lot of issues in their marriage. So you can ask some questions about how they got together, how long have they been married, what has it been like. And then as any Christian counselor or anybody who's been in ministry for any length of time will tell you, in marriages, most of the conflicts come down to these few categories. And those categories would include communication and conflicts, conflict resolution, how do people resolve conflicts. We once counseled a couple who'd been married a few years and they said, we've never had any disagreements or conflicts in our marriage. And the rest of us are like, yeah, right. <laughs> then you're not really communicating or living together. So communication conflicts. Uh, another area that is common for uh, issues in, in marriages, parenting. Conflicts in parenting. Finances is another big topic. In-laws is another hot topic in, in uh, marital conflicts. Intimacy, 
and men's and women's roles. So how many is it? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven or eight different topics are kind of very common when it comes to the area of marriage counseling. And so we've actually taken those topics and a few more that is our part of our premarital training program here. So when couples at our church get engaged to be married, we put them through a premarital class and we try to talk about the biblical perspective of each of these different areas to try to prepare people for uh, the storm that is to come that is marriage. All right, so that's uh, step one, where to begin. Those are, those are things to begin. Understand their goal and yours. Try to get them to, to, to commit to honoring the Lord in their decisions. And then data gathering. Try to understand what are the issues that have plagued their marriage and have brought them to this point. Question number two. What erroneous notion do Jack and Jill appear to share in common? And uh, the, the, the notion that they appear to share in common that is erroneous is that their marriage is based on feelings or that their relationship is based on feelings, right? And they're saying like, well, because I don't feel like I love her anymore, then it's okay to get divorced. And, she, and she's agreeing like, yeah, well, yeah, I don't, I don't have those feelings for him anymore. But that is an erroneous notion. And so that needs to be uh, confronted and educated uh, with the truth of scripture. Number three, what is the number one thing that this couple needs? Right? They need to make Christ the Lord of their lives and the Lord of their marriage. Number four, how will you identify or investigate this need and bring it to light? So how do you investigate? How do you see, like, you know, are they really believers or not, right? You just ask them their testimony. Ask them to see, like, why don't you tell me about your Christian journey? Why don't you tell me about your walk of faith? How did you come to know the Lord? How did you come to the point where you confess or profess to be a believer? And um, it's possible that they maybe really aren't believers. And so they need to hear the gospel and they need to understand the gospel better. Um, but that's a, a good place to start is to talk about their Christian testimonies and then to describe their relationship and, and, and uh, their relationship together um, as individuals um, with one another and also the relationship with the Lord. So those are just some kind of the basic starting points for this case. All right. So uh, if you have any other questions or other comments, I'd, be, we'd, we'd, I'd love to hear some comments and insights that you might have so I can add it to uh, uh, future trainings for the future. But that's just kind of the beginning point uh, of case number one. Case number two, and Lord willing, we'll talk about case number two next week. Case number two is on your uh, handout on the second page, Michael and Mary. So the first one is Jack and Jill. The second one is Michael and Mary. Again, these are not based on anybody in particular. Michael and Mary have been going to your church for many years. They've brought their 15-year-old daughter, Mabel, to you for counseling. They're having problems parenting her. Quote, anytime we ask her to clean up her room or do some chores, she flies into a rage, hurls profanities at us, and we end up screaming at each other until she slams her bedroom door and locks us out. So question number one is, what are some verses that come to mind that might be useful in your counseling sessions? Question number two, where would you start in your counseling sessions with this family? And question number three, what are some potential issues that you can identify or at least see the need to investigate based on what little you know already? So again, these are, these are artificial case constructs that we have put together just for the purpose of uh, equipping and teaching and education. Uh, it's obviously not the full picture, but um, just things so that we can start um, get our minds uh, wrapped around and how to, to effectively counsel people. All right, so that's case number two. Again, Lord willing, we'll talk about that next week. All right. All right, so last week, if you recall, if you were here, we talked about the topic of presenting everyone completing Christ by the power of Christ. It was the heart foundation of biblical counseling based on Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. And last week, we learned about the message, the method, 
the manner and the motivation for Christian counseling. Last week, I think, was more of an uh, expositional message where we focused on the text. This week is kind of more like a seminar, so more of a little bit of a seminar style. We're not going to just dwell on one text of Scripture so much. So you can see in your outline here, uh, just the Roman numerals here, the outline for today, Introduction to Biblical Counseling, Part 1. Number one, the need for biblical counseling. Number two, the definition of biblical counseling. The subpoint is the seven distinctives of biblical counseling. Number three, the theological basis of biblical counseling. Number four, fundamental and irrecoverable errors of psychology. And the last one is the call to biblical counseling. Let's uh, begin our time this morning with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the chance for us to gather together as, um, as a spiritual family, as believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, um, your people for whom your son died. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through your word and through your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray for our time this morning as we talk about biblical counseling, God, that you would help us to be a church that, that cares for one another in this way, that we would minister to one another, that we would continually point each other towards Christ, that we would be invested in the lives of one another for the purpose of sanctification. God, that you would see us be conformed to the image of your Son. That is the reason you created us. That is the, the reason that you have called us, so that we bring glory to you as we become more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray, God, that uh, even in our short time this morning, that you would help us to accomplish those things to the end of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, Roman numeral one from your outline here is the need for biblical counseling. Uh, there is an epidemic that we see in our nation, the epidemic. And this epidemic is spreading across the country. It is an epidemic that affects over 56 million Americans. That's almost one in five Americans. And this epidemic is steadily spreading. It is an epidemic that reaches across age and gender and cultural influences. In a study that was conducted by the World Health Organization, the World Bank, and Harvard University, the study revealed that the disease burden of this epidemic outweighs the disease burden of all cancers combined. It is estimated that this epidemic costs the United States more than $46.6 billion to treat each year, and this epidemic is the leading cause of disability worldwide among people over the age of five. What is this epidemic? Is it the Ebola virus? Is it the measles or is it a new kind of influenza? No, it is the epidemic of anxiety and depression. There is an association in America, it's called the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. It's a real thing, okay? The Anxiety and Depression Association of America, they state that for 2015, the number of adult Americans with an anxiety disorder or depression alone is estimated to be 56 million people. And in my own practice, I've done a informal study over, over a series of weeks. What I did is for a number of, for two weeks, in about a two weeks time, when I was practicing in Yorblinda, I'd see about maybe 250 people. And what I did is I just kind of wrote down every single time I saw somebody who was taking a medication for anxiety or depression, right? So I did that for two weeks, one year, and then I waited another year and I did it again for another two weeks. And my informal study showed that about 30% of my patients in Yorblinda are on medications for anxiety or depression. Okay, so I'm not gonna publish that, it's not official stuff. Just an unofficial study. But 30% of the people that I saw in my clinic or on medication for anxiety or depression. All right, so this, there is an epidemic, and this is the epidemic in part that we hope to address. Let her be faith and practice. And so this is where the, the rubber meets the road. 
This is the exercise of our faith. Do we really believe God's word is true? Do we really believe God's word is sufficient? How do we look at our problems, our conflicts, our decisions, and other people? Is it through the lens of scripture? And how do we apply God's word and the biblical principles to the various situations of our lives? I mean, we, we can say, yes, I believe in a sovereign God, but really, do we actually believe it? Do we believe that God is sovereign over all of the events of our lives? Even the minuscule conflicts, stresses, anxieties that we have, do we trust that God is in control? If we really did, right, then we wouldn't have anything to worry about. Right? But I'm human just like you, and so there are things that, in my mind, that, that I have a hard time giving over to the Lord. And so that is what the idea of biblical counseling is, is really taking the truth of Scripture and helping believers apply it to their lives. That's the faith and practice. Let us see equipping. We need to be equipped in the church to disciple one another and to effectively counsel people who are struggling either with their own sin and its consequences or the consequences of sins committed against them. And this ministry, as we saw last week, is not restricted to pastors or elders or leaders, but is the ministry and responsibility of the whole church for all of its members. All of us together are ministering to one another in this, in this way. Letter D is abdication. We need to have a biblical perspective on modern secular psychology and mental health issues and not be intimidated or misled by the pseudoscientific claims and assertions made by psychologists, therapists, and mental health quote-unquote professionals. So I want to make a caveat here, and I'll say this again a little bit later. I mean, there may be some people who are, who are mental health professionals, or you have friends and family who are mental health professionals. And so what we're going to try to do here is, in the next couple of weeks, is talk about the secular perspective on quote-unquote mental health issues and compare and contrast that to the biblical perspective. So this idea of abdication is that too often the church has abdicated its role in helping people with spiritual issues by reclassifying them as mental, emotional, or psychological issues and then by having a defer and refer mindset. Right. Oh, this is, you know, this, is, this is out of the realm of the church. We're going to send you to a mental health specialist. But we reject the notion that a quote-unquote expert with psychological training is really needed to help someone with serious emotional problems. Right? And we'll talk about that when we get to the theology part in a second. But I want to tell you a story. In 1980, Grace Community Church, John MacArthur's church, was hit with the first ever clergy malpractice lawsuit. The suit charged that the pastors on staff were negligent because they had tried to help a suicidal young member of the church by giving him biblical truth. It was the first such case ever heard in the American court system. This, this case showed how this young man from, I'm sorry, um, Grace Community Church and the pastors there, they showed this young man from scripture that suicide is wrong. They urged him to let the word of God lead him into an intimate knowledge and appropriation of the resources available in the one who wanted to heal his troubled mind. Tragically, this young man refused their counsel and took his own life. This case raised the question of whether churches should have the legal right to counsel troubled people using only the Bible. The plaintiffs argue that giving a depressed or suicidal person advice from scripture is simplistic and irresponsible in its approach to counseling. They brought forward several quote-unquote experts who testified that spiritual counsel is not appropriate for people who have real problems. The plaintiffs argue that victims of chronic depression, suicidal tendencies, and similar emotional and mental problems should be referred to a psychological expert. The lawsuit contended that the pastors and church counselors at Grace Community Church should be required to refer such people to mental health professionals. 
Their basic charge was that attempting to counsel troubled people from the Bible amounts to recklessness and negligence for which church counselors must be held morally and legally culpable. Had they won this case, any church that practiced biblical counseling would be taking a huge liability risk. Testimony in this case showed that the pastoral staff had seen to it that this young man was examined by several medical doctors to rule out organic or chemical causes for his depression. He was receiving every kind of therapy available, but sadly, he chose to end his life anyways. Three different courts actually heard evidence in this case, and all three ruled in favor of the church. Eventually, this case was appealed to the United States Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, and the high court refused to hear the case, thereby letting stand the California Supreme Court ruling that finally vindicated the church. All three times the case was heard, because they um, appealed, all three times the case was heard and a ruling was given, the judges also expressed the opinion that the church had not failed in its responsibility to give proper care. Their judgment was that the church staff had more than fulfilled their legal and moral obligations in how they attempted to help this young man who had sought their counsel. But even more importantly, the courts affirmed every, court, every church's constitutional right to counsel from the Bible. The case established a legal precedent upholding an important First Amendment right of freedom of religion. The court's ruling means that secular courts have no right to encroach on the area of counseling in the church. We'll come back to this idea of abdication a little bit later. Letter E, discernment, to navigate the world of quote-unquote Christian counseling. Those who mean well but mistakenly integrate secular psychology with biblical principles. I want to share a little bit about my, my personal journey in this area of interest in biblical counseling. I first became interested in having a biblical perspective on mental health issues in high school. During my senior year of high school, one of my good friends, uh, we were on the tennis team together, his mother was diagnosed with depression. My friend and his family were professing believers. He told me that his mother had a chemical imbalance and that the doctor had given her medication to help. And I remember seeing, because I used to go over to his house often, I remember the change in my friend's mom. Previously, she was very friendly, she was engaging, she was a vivacious person. And then somehow she changed. I remember going over to their house and, and witnessing this change. Her face had become expressionless. She moved slowly, she talked slowly. Everything about her was flat. And I still remember getting the phone call. It was a few months later, it was during my first year of college at UCLA. I remember being in my dorm room. It was my friend's girlfriend on the phone, Cindy. She said this, Huey, something bad has happened. My friend's mom had committed suicide. I remember coming home from UCLA and spending the night at my friend's house with him and his father that night, or the night after it happened. And I remember trying to comfort them, but also struggling to understand how this could happen. What was God's perspective? What was the biblical perspective on the situation? How can you explain this? And then during medical school, during my psychiatry classes and rotations, I learned about Piaget, Erickson, Jung, Maslow, and Freud. These are all psychologists, and they have models of psychological development trying to explain how the mind works. And I was confronted with real patients, real issues, difficult circumstances, psychological and emotional issues. We learned about psychotropic medications, antidepressants, mood-altering treatments, even electroconvulsive therapy. And the same questions arose. How can you explain psychological, mental, and emotional problems from a biblical perspective. During residency, I began to prescribe psychotropic medications myself, not for me, but for my patients. And I was trained in secular psychology and counseling. For two years in residency, 
Every Tuesday afternoon, we have something called Behavioral Medicine Clinic. Every Tuesday afternoon, in, for two years in residence, two of the three years, I spent those afternoons counseling patients, prescribing them psychotropic medications under the tutelage of psychologists and psychiatrists. At the same time, the Master's Seminary was kind enough to let me audit some of their biblical counseling classes. And I also spent a summer taking the uh, Master's in Arts and Biblical Counseling coursework and was blessed for that summer to sit under the teaching of God's word by experienced counselors like Wayne Mack, John Street, and Stuart Scott. This series, as we're gonna discuss in the next few weeks, is largely a summary of what I've learned through the study of God's word and these experiences. And uh, I have to tell you, the MABC program was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to be able to spend a, a summer dedicated to learning about what the Bible has to say about uh, mental health issues. And I think for Dr. Mack and Dr. Street and, and Stuart Scott, they enjoyed having someone who was a physician in there too, so we could kind of engage and talk about um, the medical perspective uh, and have a discourse about those things. All right, so let's move on to Roman numeral two, the definition of biblical counseling. First, we'll begin with what biblical counseling is not. What biblical counseling is not? It is not therapy, right? Therapy is kind of about how much progress you can make, right? And in therapy, this is typically what you do. You take any person, right, any, any, any of us are self-centered by nature, right? The Bible assumes that we are self-centered. Philippians 2 verse 3 says, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. There is an assumption that we're already looking out for our own personal interests. Ephesians 5.29, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes, cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. We all automatically, by default, have this idea where we take care of ourselves. So take any person who is self-centered by nature, take any of us, Give us 45 minutes to an hour to dedicate the entire time thinking about and talking about ourselves, our thoughts, our emotions. Focus on all the ways that life has been unfair to us, all the ways people have disappointed us, betrayed us, each and every way that we have been sinned against and how it is an affront to our self-worth. That's what we do in, 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 in therapy. And then affirm and validate all of our thoughts and emotions. Take a few moments to build up our self-esteem, our self-worth, our self-realization, maybe give us a few breathing exercises, extol the virtues and power of positive thinking. How much progress do you think can be made in dealing with life's issues? Right? Good session today, we'll see you next week. Right? Biblical counseling is not therapy. Number two, biblical counseling is not a ministry in a vacuum. It is not to be undertaken apart from normal fellowship and life in the church. Biblical counseling, as we talked about last week, is a necessary part of normal church life, including attending worship, listening to the preaching of God's word, prayer, fellowship, missions and evangelism, serving the church, care groups. Biblical counseling is a part of normal Christian living. Finally, biblical counseling is not optional, right? Biblical counseling is not optional. And this is the verse from last week, right? Colossians 1, 29. We proclaim him, admonishing everyone, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Biblical counseling is not optional. All right, so letter B, finally, what biblical counseling is, it is discipleship. It's already on your outline, right? Biblical counseling uses God's word, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and motivated by the gospel to change desires, thinking, thought processes, and behavior in order to facilitate the sanctification process for the glory of God. In a word, it is discipleship. And this is the only way to give real hope. 
That is the definition of biblical counseling. All right, so seven distinctives of biblical counseling. Moving on in your, in your outline. Seven distinctives of biblical counseling. Number one, God is at the center of counseling. God is sovereign, active, merciful, commanding, powerful. The Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the center, central focus of counseling and the example of the wonderful counselor. Right, contrast that to secular counseling where the counselee or the person is at the center of the counseling. In, this, in biblical counseling, God is at the center of the counseling. The word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit are foundational to all significant and lasting life change. The word of God is about counseling, giving both understanding of people and methods of ministering to people. The Bible is authoritative, relevant, and comprehensively sufficient for counseling. God has spoken truly to every basic issue of human nature and to the problems in living. His word establishes the goal of counseling, how people can change, the role of the counselor, counseling methods, and so forth. Christians have the only authoritative source for counseling wisdom, the Holy Spirit speaking through the word of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and biblical wisdom is the worthy goal of counseling. God is at the center of counseling. Number two, the word of God is the authority. All sources of knowledge must be submitted to the authority of scripture. The sciences, personal experience, literature, and everything may be useful, but they do not play a primary role in counseling. Aberrant counsel that contradicts God's counsel has existed since the Garden of Eden, challenging God's counsel and building from other presuppositions and toward other goals. Such false counsel must be noted and opposed. In particular, secular psychology has intruded into the domain of biblical truth and practice. Secular theories and therapies substitute for biblical wisdom and deceive people both inside and outside the church. These false notions must be exposed and opposed. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 and 6 says this, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. This is a very important uh, verse that we use in biblical counseling. We are destroying speculations, every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are confronting knowledge that is raised up against God's knowledge. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. All right. Number three, sin is the primary problem. Sin is the primary problem that counselors must deal with. Both sinful motives and behaviors. Both the sins that we commit and the sins committed against us. Both the consequences of personal sin and the consequences of Adam's original sin. Sin includes wrong behavior, distorted thinking, an orientation to follow personal desires, and bad, atti bad attitudes. Excuse me. Sin is habitual and deceptive, and much of the difficulty of counseling consists in bringing specific sin to awareness and breaking its hold. The problems of life that necessitate counseling are not matters of unmet psychological needs, indwelling demons of sin, poor socialization, inborn temperament, genetic predisposition, or anything else that removes attention from the responsible human being. The problem in believers is remnant sin. The problem in unbelievers is reigning sin. Sin is always the problem. If it weren't for sin, we wouldn't have biblical counseling, the need for biblical counseling. Number four, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer. Our discipleship and our counseling must be cross-centered. Forgiveness of sin and power to change into Christ's image are the greatest needs of mankind. I'll say that again. Our greatest needs, forgiveness of sin and the power to change into Christ's image are our greatest needs. Right? 
And we'll contrast this in a little bit to the fundamental and irrecoverable errors of psychology. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to the problem. Christ deals with sin, the guilt, the power, the deception, and the misery of sin. He was crucified for sinners. He reigns over hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he will return to complete the redemption of his people from their sins and sufferings. These core truths must persistently permeate the counseling process and fuel our hope. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives us hope. Not a pill, not another person, not in changed behavior, not even in changed circumstances. We put our hope in a savior. The gospel is the answer, and it's more than throwing the gospel at our problems. It's not a mystical phrase or some pithy statement that we, you just need to believe the gospel. But discipleship is the compassionate and skillful application of the gospel and the word of God to a person's life. Let me give you an example. In discipling someone with depression, as we interact with someone, as we get to know them, as we understand their struggles through fellowship, through careful and probing questions, we may uncover that they have self-worth issues. They may incorrectly define their self-worth through the health or success of their kids, through how nice their home is, through their relationships, through their career, through their usefulness or productivity. In my own practice, I often ask people like, oh, tell me about yourself. It's really interesting, right? Most of the women, when I ask them that question, tell me about yourself, they say, uh, I'm a mother, right? I'm married, and uh, I do these things, I work, or that kind of stuff. The first thing is usually their identity is like wrapped up in the motherhood or being a wife. In men, they usually say like what they do for a living, right? I am um, whatever, electrician, right? I love the 49ers, I like UCLA. Da, 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 da. Oh, and oh yes, I'm married and I have, I'm a father, right? So it's really interesting to see how, how men and women um, identify themselves, right? How their identity is wrapped up in. But anyways, going back to this example of someone with depression, right? As we interact to them, with them, we get to know them, right? We understand that they may have some self-worth issues. A secular psychologist, they may be, to able, they may be able to correctly identify that someone has self-worth issues. They would call it a self-esteem issue. But because secular psychologists have no hope themselves, they can't give hope. So they often resort to platitudes of self-esteem or uniqueness or self-expression. And they may say one of the following things, or all of the following things. Quote, if you aren't good at loving yourself, you will have a difficult time loving anyone else, since you'll resent the time and energy you give another person that you aren't even giving to yourself. That's uh, Christian psychologist Barbara DeAngelis. Every time we act in, in harmony with our, with our, I can't even say this. Every time we act in harmony with our authentic self and our heart, we earn our respect. It's that simple. I don't even understand what that means. Um, you yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserve your love and affection. That's from Buddha. Ralph Waldo Emerson. What lies behind us, what lies before us, are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. You don't need anyone else to complete you. You complete you. You're perfect just the way you are. In the entire history of the world, there has been only one you, right? And my favorite, Dr. Phil, the most important relationship you'll ever have in your life is with you. You bailed on you. All right. These thoughts might be clever and catchy, but they're so empty. The Bible and the gospel define our worth and give us reason to have hope, not through ourselves, right? We're dead in our trespasses and sins, right? We don't have hope in what we've done. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, but our value is defined by the almighty God who loves us and what was sacrificed to save us, right? His son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what defines our worth. 
Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39. Familiar passage, Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39. Who will separate us from the love of Christ, right? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Verse 38, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. right? Either things a believer can do or things that they can have done to them. We are victorious through him who loved us. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 7. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on, on us. We are adopted by God himself, chosen before the foundation of the world to be his sons and daughters. We have been redeemed with the ultimate ransom. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 21, say this, I'm sorry, uh, 31 and following, say this, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? This is the argument from the greater to the lesser, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody, right? If God sacrificed his precious and only son, Jesus Christ, for us, why would he withhold anything lesser from us? Again, the argument from the greater to the lesser. If he gave us his son, Jesus Christ, how could he withhold anything else from us? He doesn't. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer. Our discipleship and our counseling must be cross-centered. Number five, the process of change that counseling must aim at is progressive sanctification. The process of change that counseling must aim at is progressive sanctification. While there are many ways of changing people, Biblical counseling aims for nothing less than transformation into the image of and increasing union with Jesus Christ. Change is not instantaneous, but progresses throughout life. This progressive view of sanctification includes ongoing repentance, renewal of the mind with biblical truth, and obedience in the power of the Spirit. One key principle in the biblical process of change is the idea of putting off and putting on. Right? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24 says this, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside, you put off the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So we are to lay aside or put off the old self and put on the new self. Romans chapter 13 verse 14 is like it, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to 17 is also a well-known passage for putting off or laying aside our sinful flesh and putting on a new self. Jesus taught on this principle in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, he uses the words, do not, no less than 10 times in this chapter. But he doesn't just give us a list of things not to do or things to avoid. He also provides the right attitudes and the right things to put on as well. So, for example, in, in, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, 
where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? So even the Lord Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, as he was giving people counsel, was, was employing this put-off, put-on dynamic. And we'll revisit Matthew chapter 6 at the end of this series, Lord willing, in September. All right, number six. Uh, we're talking about seven distinctives of biblical counseling. Number six, the difficult circumstances people face are not the random cause of problems in life. These difficulties operate within the, sovereignty, uh, the sovereign design of God. They are the context in which hearts are revealed and faith and obedience are purified through the battle between the spirit and the flesh. Influential aspects of one's life do not cause sin. Heredity, temperament, personality, culture, oppression and evil, bereavement, handicaps of old age, uh, Satan, physical illness, and so forth, they are significant for counseling, and we talk about those things and address those, but they are not ultimately the cause of sin. Right? Our sinful nature is the cause of sin. So it's not, we can't blame people's circumstances. Circumstances usually are what bring out what's going on in the heart. We don't typically blame people's circumstances. Number seven, counseling is a shepherding activity. It must be church-based. This is a running theme that you've probably caught on to. Counseling is a shepherding activity. It must be church-based. It must be regulated under the authority of God's appointed under-shepherds. Counseling is connected both structurally and in content to other aspects of the pastoral task or the ministry of the church. Teaching, preaching, prayer, discipline, use of gifts, missions, worship, and so forth. Counseling is the private ministry of the word of God tailored specifically to the individuals involved. The differences between preaching and counseling are not conceptual, but only methodological, right? In preaching, we kind of, it's one message for everybody, right? But in counseling, you take the word of God and you tailor it specifically or tailor the, the teaching of it specifically to the individual involved. The same truths are applied, but in different ways. Skill, maturity, practice, and much prayer and reliance upon the Lord are necessary to do biblical counseling in a way that provides hope to the counselee, in a way that glorifies God and exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of God is a sword, and it can be used haphazardly to chop like a hatchet, leaving a whole host of complications, or it can be used skillfully like a surgeon's scalpel to remove disease and cancer, bringing restoration, healing, and hope. So it does take a lot of skill and practice to be able to wield the word of God in a way um, that, that brings hope and healing. So these are the seven commitments that have unified the biblical counseling movement. They provided the framework with, within which many secondary differences of Bible interpretation, theological commitment, and setting of counseling uh, or personality have been able to exist constructively rather than destructively. All right, so let's move on to Roman numeral three, theological basis of biblical counseling. The theological basis of biblical counseling, letter A, is number one, uh, is the sufficiency of scripture. The sufficiency of scripture. The inspired and inerrant word of God is the only authoritative source by which we can know absolute truth. It is totally sufficient to address any issue of which it speaks and for which it claims to be sufficient. So we affirm the sufficiency, the superiority, and the practicality of scripture for dealing with all the issues of life. And we want to convince Christians that the resources we have in Christ and his word are not only sufficient for handling and solving all of the personal and interpersonal problems of life, but they are actually superior to the resources that are found in the world. Okay? The, the resources that we have as Christians, through the word of God, through the Holy Spirit, 
are superior to the resources that are found in the world. Second Peter chapter two, uh, Second Peter chapter one, verses two and three: Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and excellence. We have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. We don't need secular psychology to live the Christian life. Second Timothy three sixteen and 17, you're familiar with this, of course. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So even as a physician, right, who's practiced psychology, psychiatry, who has prescribed psychotropic medications, as a physician, as a scientist, I can attest to you that the word of God is the only authoritative source by which we can know absolute truth. It is totally sufficient to address any issue of which it speaks. Letter B, the application of scripture and systematic theology. Everything from the Bible that is taught from the pulpit, Sunday school, equipping hour, care groups, etc., even your own study, all of these truths are employed in biblical counseling and practical living. In particular, subpoint number one, theology proper, the doctrine of God. His holiness and sovereignty, right, are, are part of the doctrine of God. We want to have a doxological perspective Everything is for the glory of God so that we are theocentric rather than anthropocentric. We are God-centered rather than man-centered. God is the center, not man. Anthropology, the doctrine of man, is important in biblical counseling. We are created beings. We are not just animals. God has created us, created us with a purpose. Harmartiology, the doctrine of sin. We are born with a hereditary disorder, all of us passed down from generation to generation, which genetically predisposes us to disobedience. And it's called sin, or the sinful nature. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and verse 9. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Verse 19. For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The next area of scripture and systematic theology that we apply to our lives is soteriology, the gospel and the doctrine of salvation. If the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to our number one problem, then we better know the gospel and get it right. And finally, pneumatology, ecclesiology, right, the science and the doctrine of uh, the Holy Spirit and the science and doctrine of the church, those, those areas of theology are also important in biblical counseling. All right. Another subpoint, not, not quite to ruin number four yet, but another subpoint under this one. Not only does everything that we learn from the Bible apply to practical living and biblical counseling, but everything in our life falls under the authority of Scripture. And what I mean by that is that there's no part of our life that doesn't fall under a scriptural heading, a, a spiritual heading. Again, I'll say that again. There's no part of our life that doesn't fall under a spiritual heading. We can't compartmentalize our lives and say that this particular area is not spiritual. Everything has spiritual implications and thus falls under the authority of scripture and biblical counseling. There's no situation that is quote unquote strictly medical, right? Someone gets diagnosed with diabetes or cancer or another disease, there are spiritual implications to that. It's not strictly a medical issue. We believe in a sovereign God who is in control over everything, including medical diseases. If you get diagnosed with a medical illness, 
God has a plan for that and will use that to bless you and glorify himself. As our, our team is getting ready to go to Malaysia, there's a brother in Malaysia at the church CBF there. His name is Jason. He is in the late stages of stage four cancer. And I'm hoping that I'll be able to shake his hand in a couple of weeks when I go there, but he may go to be with the Lord before that. It's an example of somebody who has a medical illness, and yet he's using that to glorify God and his testimony. <coughs> Excuse me. All right. Likewise, <clears throat> there are no situations that are strictly business or financial. There's no situations that are strictly medical. There are no situations that are strictly business or financial. We were created as spiritual beings, and thus everything has a spiritual component. So I'm sitting here, racking my brain, trying to think about, maybe there, maybe there is an area of life that doesn't have a spiritual component. Maybe you guys can help me with that. Being the nerd that I am, I'm trying to think of something. Is there anything in life that doesn't have a spiritual component? And I think about, what about calculus, right? What about calculus? It doesn't get any more objective than that, right? Where's, where's Melly and Jason? Are they here? They're math majors. Fundamental, pure science, just numbers, right? Surely calculus doesn't have a spiritual side to it, right? But do you know why calculus, derivative, derivatives, integrals, and differential equations work? Because God makes them work. God is a God of order. He's a God of sense, of logic, of reason, and he's a God of math, right? So give God the glory. All right, let's move on. We're almost done. Uh, fundamental and irrecoverable errors of psychology. Lord willing, we're going to talk next week about the pseudoscience of psychology, right? And I'll call it the pseudoscience because it often uses scientific language to communicate its tenets and beliefs. But modern psychology is essentially a religion. Again, with apologies to those who are in or have friends and relatives in the mental health field, right? But they are purveyors of religion. There are those who say, well, isn't all truth God's truth? Therefore, we should integrate discoveries and truths from psychology and the study of the mind with biblical counseling and use the best of both worlds. But I would strongly caution that approach for the following reasons. Psychology has, at its foundation, patently wrong presuppositions and fundamental principles. Now, you may be able to make some accurate observations, right? Science and secular psychology are really good at this. They, they are good, admittedly, in the area of making observations. But if you start with the wrong presuppositions, your conclusion is going to be clearly wrong. For example, letter A, evolutionary foundation in anthropology. Psychology has an evolutionary foundation in anthropology, and I put a, a verse in scripture that is uh, obviously is opposed to that because we were created in God's image. Because secular psychology begins with a faulty view of who man is, not as one created in God's image and morally responsible to him, Secular psychology cannot properly diagnose the fundamental problem, which is sin. Without addressing the problem of sin, meaningful God-glorifying change can never take place. Number two, human nature is basically good, or at worst, a blank slate. Right? And we know that this is not true. From Romans chapter 3, verse 10, verse 23, we know that there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who seeks after God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But secular psychology believes one of its central tenets is that human nature is basically good, or at the very least, a blank slate. Number three, letter C. People have the answers to their problems inside of them. Right? Just listen to that still small voice. Right? Search deep inside within your heart and you'll find the hero that lives within you. I think it's a Mariah Carey song or something like that, right? Letter, letter, letter D. The key to understanding and correcting a person's attitudes and actions lies somewhere in that person's past, right? Secular psychology says, like, the, prob the problems that you're dealing with now 
It's because of the way that you were raised. It's because of your parents. It's because of something else. It's because of something that happened to you many, many years ago, right? And it, while it could be true that there are ramifications of something that happened to you many, many years ago, that is not the central core of our problems, right? I've taken part even in these things where we actually like visualize ourselves as, uh, as, a, as an infant. Actually, before we're infants, right? You, you visualize yourself going through the birth canal and somehow the trauma of going through the birth canal is so traumatic that it, it affects your life and how you deal with it, right? It's just silliness. But they believe in it, right? They believe in it. All right, um, letter E, individuals' problems are the result of what someone else has done to them, right? But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says in James chapter 4, right, what is the source of conflicts and quarrels among you, right? It is your lust. It is the things that you want to do, right? I'm just paraphrasing here, but James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder, and you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. It's not because of what someone else has done to us. Letter F. Again, these are the fundamental and irrecoverable errors of psychology. Letter F. Human problems can be purely psychological in nature. They can be unrelated to any spiritual or physical condition. Not true. Letter G. Deep-seated problems can be solved only by professional counselors using therapy and pharmaceuticals. Letter H. Scripture, prayer, and the Holy Spirit are inadequate and simplistic resources for solving certain types of problems. And finally, letter I, relativism, right? The idea of relativism. There's no fixed moral values, right? In secular psychology, they're anti-guilt, they're anti-conscience, right? Sin in secular psychology is a bad word. But in, in biblical counseling, right, we talk about sin all the time. All right, let's end with this. Uh, number five, I think it's on the back page. The call to biblical counseling. The, the call to biblical counseling. First, the failure of the church, as I, as I mentioned before, from about the 1900s to the 1970s, with the emergence of medicine and science, right? The church, for all those years, decades, abdicated their role in counseling for secular psychology. Right? There was this, mind, this mindset to, to defer and refer. Oh, you've got real problems here. Uh, we're going to refer you to a psychologist. You need to go see your doctor about that, right? Letter B, we see the doctor as priest. And I see this in my own practice, right? Medicine is the new religion, right? hundred years ago, somebody was struggling with anxiety. Someone was struggling with depression. Somebody struggling with, with emotional issues. Where would they go? They would go see their priest or their pastor, right? Now, they come to see me. Right? I see them all day long in my clinic. Right? Medicine is the new religion. And so it wasn't until about 1970 that uh, J. Adams, J.E. Adams, not our founding father, but another man, Christian man, J. Adams, wrote this book that kind of changed the landscape of Christian counseling and biblical counseling. He wrote this book called Competent to Counsel in 1970. And it was an indictment of the church, right? And an eye-opener to the church. Like, look, these are spiritual issues, Right? You're abdicating to the, to the world. You're abdicating to secular psychology. You're wholesale abandoned the Christian faith in the areas of, of practical living, and you've given it over to the secular world. And Jay Adams wrote this book, Competent to Counsel, that changed the landscape. And he's considered kind of the father of the biblical counseling movement. All right. Letter D, our calling from Scripture. 
We read this one already, Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 to 29. We proclaim him, Christ, admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Romans 15, 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. That's that word we used last week, nutheteo, to admonish one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. My brethren, if any, of you str- if, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we have a call. We have a call to biblical counseling, and that's one of the reasons why we are having this series. Right? Lord willing, we'll spend more time in, uh, uh, in this topic. Next week, we're going to talk about secular psychology a little bit more, and we're going to kind of put it up head-to-head versus biblical counseling. All right, there's five minutes left, so I need to close in prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, again, this morning, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here to be equipped in the area of biblical counseling, to hear from your word and to to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to increase our faith. We believe, but we ask that you would help our unbelief so that we might believe the truth of scripture, so that we might apply them to our, our, our lives and to our world. And so we thank you for biblical counseling. We thank you for the opportunity to learn about these things. We pray that you would use these things to cause our church as corporately, as a body, and also as individuals that we'd be more like your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right, we're going to take a short break, and we'll begin our service uh, in about five minutes.